there's this new thing called ChatGPT. If you haven't heard of it, just check it out. <laughs> but uh, it's really changing a lot. It's a very disruptive technology. And one thing that's very unique in terms of disruptive technologies that we've seen in the past is the incumbents are moving quickly. Simba Cotter, welcome to Winning with Data. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So you run a pretty cool business called Feature Form, and I would love to start with a bit about what that business is and what your mission is and what the product does. Feature Form is a feature store. We are a way for data science teams, specifically ones working on machine learning, to define, manage, and serve their model features. We'll get into what a feature is, I'm sure, and all that for this conversation. Actually, I probably built my last company. My last company, we were doing personalization, predicting subscriptions, predicting churn, kind of a variety of different tasks for large media businesses. We were handling over 100 million monthly active users at our peak. And we built feature form to actually solve our own problem of scaling machine learning, both in the like amount of data, size of model, and a lot of it was actually focused on the people. How do we scale a machine learning organization? So uh, I'm sure we'll get into all that, but that's kind of a brief intro. What is a feature really? And why does it matter? And how do we organize it? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, your average scout or decision maker at a professional sports team probably doesn't think about how many different ways a through ball or an attacking pass in soccer could be defined or a tackle that's successful or not could be defined in another sport. And there's a lot of data architecture work to do there. So what are these things and, and why do they matter? A feature is a signal. It's a signal that you provide a model. So you can think of a model as, it's not a black box, well, it depends on the type of model, but you can think of it as kind of this magic box that you give signal to. And the signal is kind of context, it's information that it uses to then make a prediction. To simplify things a little bit, you can think of it as this kind of, you're either working on the model, in which case you're coming up with different architectures, you're coming up with different tunings. That's one on the black box side, trying to build kind of a smarter model. The other side, is coming up with better signal. So, hey, I have this raw data. Maybe it's a baseball player every single hit or every single time they've swung a bat. Like I have that data and I can uh, take that and turn it into a ton of different signal. Just think of everything you could imagine you collect. There's the obvious stuff. How often do they hit the ball? Anyone in sports analysis will know better than I that they uh, can use to feed into the model to do better predictions. And oftentimes, those getting those proprietary signals, proprietary in the sense of the data is there, but like the way you think about the data, the way you process it, the signal you pull is taking your analysts or whoever's kind of hypothesis, kind of using their knowledge of the sport and some creativity. It's kind of the human element that you can never really replace and taking that and applying that to create the best signals. In practice, most of the time, is spent on building better signal. And again, signals is features, so building better features. And it is the most understandable piece of it. If you pull in a better feature and the model does better as a whole, it kind of makes sense. Sometimes you can tweak a model and it does better, but you're kind of not sure why. And in some ways that's scarier. 
it could be better because it actually understands the data better, or it could be better because it's like kind of, let's say the stars are aligning in a specific way, but in practice, it won't really be predictive or that predictive moving forward. So feature engineering is where most of the time is spent. And it's also where most of the time should be spent. So a lot of the feature firms goal is to actually improve that part of the process for your data scientists and analysts. Yeah, where time should or shouldn't be spent is a pretty fun topic. So let's talk about machine learning operations. What does it mean? What does it represent? What is governance and systems and processes and how people organize themselves to actually deliver value to stakeholders? Great question. So the history of MLOps, and this is actually kind of history of a lot of different ops, is there is typically a technology shift that is followed usually a year or two after with explosion in ops. So for example, we had this explosion in big data tools, Hadoop, Spark, etc. Not long after, we end up with this explosion in data ops tools. It's almost like there's a new capability that gets revealed and then it's like, cool, you end up with almost experiments, examples. Like this is kind of where most people are at with GPT. If we're doing anything, it's kind of experiments. Like, oh, I have one team who's trying this really interesting thing. But it's definitely not like, you know, GPT, I can imagine almost every company is like deeply integrated into, you know, every team and how they do things. It's kind of experimental. Over time, these new technologies, this is also true of big data, by the way, and true of machine learning. With machine learning in the early days, it was kind of specific teams were really doing it. And it was kind of for experimental, like, oh, I have this idea, how about if we apply machine learning for this? How would that do? Over time, these experiments are successful enough that you end up with data scientists and analysts and, and different types of these roles who are building models all over organization. And then the problems become kind of, how do we make this an actual process? When it's an experiment, you could just do whatever. Just like get it there, like show that it works, give a presentation, show your results. If you do well, then we'll figure out how to operationalize it later. But once you were past that and now we're like, cool, like now we have teams everywhere, we need to be able to operationalize machine learning in a way that is fast, reliable, risk averse, depending on the use case. But for a lot of use cases, it really can't screw up or bad things happen. And so MLOps was invented. It kind of just came into about naturally, like everyone kind of built their own tools because you kind of needed a way to do it no matter what. But those tools originally were just like these hacky scripts that people put together to just, you know, hey, it works well enough. Just like, you know, if you kick this this way and hit it this way and you, you know, run it four times and maybe it'll work. Give it a good like slap on the top and, it, it, you know, it might work. You know, that was fine because that's what they were doing and that's that's where they were at. As time has gone on, like we've become much better. Some of the best in class internal products of people take those ideas and turn them into companies. This is exactly how FeatureFrame was created. Yeah, uh, I think with MLOps in general, there's kind of three metrics I look at. For a data science team or analyst team, anyone doing machine learning, I look at the individual velocity. How fast can each of these people iterate? Iteration speed is one of the most important pieces. Throughput, which is really collaboration. Can they share ideas? Can they reuse things? Does one plus one equal three? Because you're getting compounding value. And then finally, can they do this, move quickly and collaborate without having to worry about mainly handling your own risk. For example, if you're a large bank, you have uh, a lot of proprietary information. Like you aren't in a position to do best effort for risk aversion. 
You really need to have governance, access control, all those rules deeply set in place. And they need to be part of the process and part of the structure. So rather than data scientists having to, or analysts having to like call someone or Slack someone like, hey, I'm trying to get this data and having to talk to like seven, eight people to in three months, four months, get access to the data they need. Like if all those things are put in place, then they can safely see what data they are allowed to touch and not. And they can search, hey, I'm looking for data on, you know, images of, you know, every single pitch, what, I don't know. And uh, I can search that up. I can see that I have that. I can start using it, start accessing it. I just cut four months of my iteration time. And then I built some interesting transformations so that I took the image and I turned it into maybe a text description of what's happening or maybe a few uh, parameters of like, hey, like this is like ball speed. This is all these other pieces that will, you could maybe reason about from a, a short video or something. And those features become reusable by other data scientists. So they don't have to go through the same thing. That's how good MLOps should feel. Everything is just very naturally in the process, like the tools, everything is set up to make you productive. Yeah, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into that, where oftentimes sports analytics are just one ad hoc request after another. And then there are a few long term projects that everyone's working on um, that there's never quite time to dive deep enough into to get the desired result or there's just not enough time to do many projects like that. What pieces need to be in place operationally and structurally, infrastructurally to allow the kind of iteration that you just you just talked us through? Yeah, great question. There's a lot there to break down. One is thinking about what is the most valuable thing you can get from data. Serving ad hoc requests might be one of the most valuable things. Like anyone in the company can go and ask a question um, and they can get the answer they need via the analyst team. There are other types of companies where they maybe go with like call it like a BI tool where they try to democratize it. That also has drawbacks because then you might not trust, you know, like, you know, you might be an extremely smart, you know, VP of X, but, you know, you might not be, you're not a data scientist, probably. So, you know, there's a lot of intricacies of making the queries actually correct, especially if you're going to base your decision making on it, where you kind of want a professional or someone who thinks about it all day long and is trained in it all day long. So part of it is understanding what you want from this analyst team. I was running a team of analysts and I found that, hey, my analysts are spending all of their time and had our request. There's a few things I would do quickly. One is I would be like, cool, what is our goal here? Like, why do we exist? Is our goal just to service ad hoc requests? If so, then that's fine. That's why we are here. That's my job. I will do everything I can to increase the operational efficiency. If my goal is to make the company better with data, it's a different question. And maybe then I can make my case of what I think our most valuable thing is. And so we will still always have to take ad hoc requests, but I can have maybe more, I can get buy-in of, hey, I can decline requests so that we can work on this other bigger project, long-term project, like you said, because this is actually the most valuable thing I could do with my resources. And then with the ad hoc requests, one thing that I imagine is true in a lot of these situations, a lot of those requests are the same questions being asked over and over again or slightly different flavors of the same request. Are we reusing things? How are we reusing things? How are we documenting things we've done before? Can people find answers to their own questions? Maybe someone's already asked a question before and I might be able to answer my question via that dashboard or whatever. There's a lot of operational efficiency, but I think we don't focus on mostly, a lot of times because we're underwater, we're just like, I have too many requests to think about. 
I just need to like get through these things. So time, like people's time is usually one of the most expensive things like in, in an organization. And it's funny how many silly things we do to save like a dollar on X wasting, you know, eight hours of like an analyst's time, which is much more than a few bucks. Uh, it's kind of a, a long way to say debug your process and figure out what your mission statement is and use that to make decisions. Um, and likely the problems to be solved are operational problems, operational efficiency problems, and make sure you understand how to do that, how to build again that velocity, like making each of your game lists move as quickly as possible. That ability to reuse is usually very, very important. And then again, depending on use case risk aversion, just like making sure that bad things don't happen. Um, so there's a lot of tools that come to mind, BI tools, data catalogs, feature stores, depending on how much ML you're doing. All these are tools that help alleviate that problem. How do mature organizations actually partition that in terms of creating space for ad hoc requests, having versioning and iteration of ongoing, very common use cases, and putting those use cases in a setting, you talked about BI tools, where the end user or the less technical user might be able to, for example, scenario test a certain question. What are best practices and, and hygiene and good setups that you've seen for that? It's funny because like, I've, best practices are hard in this, in this world because it's so context dependent. I know VPs of data, like for example, like I know two VPs of data who I respect highly, who are very, very good at their jobs, who one would say like democratizing these kind of ad hoc requests is really, really smart. And everyone would say it's like the dumbest thing ever. And, you know, so like best practices are hard because if you ask one of them, we'll be like best practice do X and everyone would be like, no, that's like awful practice. And the answer, which I think they both kind of know, I think it's just more fun to have a hot take is it just depends on the culture of the company. It depends on um, the type of data you're doing and, and the complexity of that data. If your data is really, really like, oh, you need to know about how it's collected to be able to really write queries, then you probably want data analysts doing things. If your data is very, very clean and very easy to reason about, then most people can, you know, set up ad hoc dashboards that are pretty good. And they can just ask for analysts to help on more, I guess, complex use cases. I think one thing that is all too common in data analyst workflows is having everything be ad hoc, not versioning things, not managing things, not naming things. A way to test this, if this is a problem, Ask an analyst how often they're reusing past work with new questions. If the answer is never, I just always start from scratch. That's bad because chances that would be very, very unusual that all the questions that you're getting are completely different. That would be very strange. And especially if you're like an organization that kind of does one thing, you know, it's like, oh, like we are whatever sports team. Like it's like your questions should sort of fall into specific categories, specific buckets. There should be things that are reusable. If they're not reusing things, then the question should be like, cool, well, how could we? If they are reusing things, which is actually more common, it would be very strange to someone who's not reusing anything. If they are reusing things, ask how. How are you documenting what you've done before? How are you reusing those things? And the answer is likely, I have a giant script of like useful snippets SQL that I use and I copy and paste between it. And I've like learned my own process of how to document all this stuff. Now, 
one, it's probably not very efficient for them as an individual. And two, even if it is, it creates a lot of key man risk because if that person was to leave, all the information is lost. If that person goes on vacation for a few weeks, like there's just a whole set of questions that can't be answered at the same speed. So that's another thing. Understanding how data analysts get access to their data. Like walk through their process. Like seriously, like it's like think of yourself as a doctor. If you're trying to make your analytics team better, think of yourself as a doctor, find the symptoms and try to diagnose those symptoms and then try to figure out what the root causes are. And doing that, you will be able to find where the you know most pain comes from. And that pain could be like how getting access to data. Like some companies, it's like, yeah, the getting access to data takes the most amount of time. Some companies, it's like, I get so many requests. I have all the data. I know where it is. That's easy. But like, I have so many requests and I'm, I'm having a hard time managing all the reuse and, and all that. Some companies, it's actually like governance and access control, which is like, Hey, I, if I'm given the data, I know where it is. I know what data I need. I know how to transform it. But to do that, I need to talk to like seven different committees to, to get that. I, I don't know if that's, that's probably not very common with sports teams. Yeah, it's, it's more just an issue that there's a lot of messy data and a lot of very imbalanced data and a lot of disconnected data. And there often isn't the time or resource space created to architect all of that into a great position to be acted on. Yeah, and mindset that has become more popular, which I really like, is thinking of data as a product. There's even been this creation of this like data PM role. Um, not to say that everyone needs a data PM, but especially organizations that are larger and more have very large data teams typically have data PMs. And if you start to think of your data as a product, and as a product, I mean, let's say there's this one data team, right? Like I am exporting a product. That product is insights. Right? Like I am making the organization better via my data. Use product metrics to try to understand how good my product is. Ask your stakeholders, hey, like what's your NPS? Do you like how much would you recommend like working with the data team at you know company X? You know, like you can literally use product metrics to try to understand how useful and valuable you are to the organization and how you can improve. Because in the end, like you have stakeholders and your goal is to empower them and empower the organization really. But like, if you can do that and you can look at it that way and frame it that way, you might find the shortest path of how do I take this data and how do I you know, make it useful? It's also might be times where it's like, Hey, listen, we're solving all these ad hoc requests, but it doesn't really matter because people are still unhappy and it's still taking forever. Like, I think that we just should call it, call it request bankruptcy for a, a week or a month. And we need to just fix all of this and it will, we'll be able to increase X, Y, Z afterwards. And that will make everyone happier and better. Um, or we need to invest more into the space because when we do get people responses, it's helped them in this much. I can then show that this is like a very valuable thing. Having two more headcount, one more headcount would allow us to be able to like make things even better and become more operationally efficient, which will continue to make the company better. So if one thinking of like the, the product. And then the other type of metrics is like how long, if you're more of an ad hoc request type analyst, like how long does it take from a request to come in to get answered? Those sort of metrics I think are much more well understood, but I think the metrics that people don't think about as much, which I think are actually more valuable is 
the end user's experience. Like you can be the fastest, you know, at request answer in the world, but if everyone's like, yeah, well, like I got that answer and I threw it in my spreadsheet, but I don't understand it. I don't even know if it's right. I like, you know, then it's a bad product experience. Last question for today, large language models, generative AI, where does it sit in all this in machine learning operations and data products? I mean, there's so much incredible stuff being created, but that doesn't mean that you know, it's working on tabular data in the ways that most end users need right now. It doesn't mean that it's going to replace machine learning platforms per se, or machine learning tools uh, that most types of businesses are interacting with, even if such capabilities will be embedded in them. You're in Silicon Valley right now. You're seeing this explode. Uh, what should folks in sports or folks, you know, wanting to interact with easy to use software be thinking about all of this? There's this new thing called ChatGPT, if you haven't heard of it check it out. <laughs> but uh, it's really changing a lot. It's a very disruptive technology. And one thing that's very unique in terms of disruptive technologies that we've seen in the past is the incumbents are moving quickly. Like some of the fastest like companies I've seen get these large models in production, the LLMs or foundation models in production and useful to end users quickly has been like Fortune 500 companies, which is like, I don't know if we've ever seen that before. Like it's almost always like the startups kind of make the use cases happen and then big companies like kind of catch up later. So it's, this is disruptive and it's obviously disruptive. Like it's not a, no, I don't think there's any exec who's like, yeah, this, you know, whatever, this doesn't change anything. It does. Now, where does it fit? And how does it fit with like, call it traditional ML, traditional data analytics? There is a class of machine learning that's very, very high throughput, as in like there's a ton of requests being made and latency matters, it has to be fast and explainability matters. You need to know how it works and why it works because we're regulated or whatever. Um, these are things like fraud detection that will not be replaced or really even affected by LLMs. Recommender systems is another example of this. Recommender systems will not be replaced by LLMs because there's just too many recommendations that have to get made. They have to be very quick. And so LLMs are expensive and they're really not made for those sorts of use cases. So I would say that those are in maybe the traditional ML bucket. And I would say most of models that exist in the world are actually in that bucket. They're kind of just very, very high throughput and requires a level of explainability. In the middle tier, there's this type of model and actually recommenders, certain type of recommender systems, depending on the, the how, I guess, I would say it's like how advanced your data science and ML capacity is. You might be able to embed these things or use driver of these things called embeddings, which are built by LMs. Think of them as special features, which are created via LLMs. So LLMs can take text and generate this special feature, which is a holistic representation of the text, which is usable by most models. Didn't even like kind of call them the traditional models can use them. So you can start to get a bump in accuracy and a bump in quality of your own models by feeding in features that are generated by LLMs. Uh, this is, yeah, this kind of opens up and, and I would say this is where you sprinkle on kind of LLMs onto traditional models. There's a new kind of category, I think, of models that are created, which weren't really possible before. And these are models that 
I would call co-pilots. Like everyone on my team, including myself, uses GPT for our day-to-day jobs. Um, like when I need to write, I had to do it the other day, I had to write a summary for a talk I was giving at a conference. And I was like looking at a blank sheet of paper. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm trying to figure out how to get this in a paragraph. So I'm like, here's the title. Give me a paragraph that would describe this title. Give me a paragraph. And it was like, man, you know, it wasn't like, oh yeah, that's it. I'm going to copy and paste it in. But I'm like, cool. I know why this is wrong. It's much easier for me to take this thing and make it better than it is for me to stare at a blank sheet of paper and try to write down the right description. And so GPT and like those use cases are really powerful in making, uh, saving people time, making people more productive. That's where we'll see a huge amount of, I call my co-pilot models. And so those types of use cases, I think, are where uh, lots of the focus should be on bringing in LMs into, into organizations.